This morning, I've decided what we're going to do is talk about um, one of the most famous of the Puritans, but he's famous not as a pastor or a theologian or church leader, but as a politician. Who would that be? Yeah. Not John Owen. He's a pastor and a theologian. Um, though he had a great affiliation with the guy that we're talking about and lived during his lifetime. Yeah, yeah. Were you going to say that, Noah? Yeah, Oliver Cromwell. I'm going to talk about Oliver Cromwell, who is kind of reviled in England today. Um, looked down on. England remains a, <laughs> a monarchy, and it loves its royal history, and the, the Lord Protector, which is the title that Cromwell had as he led the, the United Kingdom, which really became a United Kingdom in a sense right around his time and largely brought together by him in certain ways. I mean, it preceded him, but... He led that as the Lord Protector after the execution of Charles I. So, in the, in the era of the Puritans, the era that followed the Reformation, we're talking about a hundred and some years after the Reformation, the, the, the country of, of England had turned towards the Reformation, led there by Henry VIII and his wise and very um, effective advisor and sort of, I don't know if he was technically chancellor for Henry VIII, but a, a, a man named Thomas Cromwell. So you might get confused as you look at or hear English history by Thomas Cromwell and Oliver Cromwell. Well, Thomas Cromwell was an ancestor of Oliver in a, maybe not an ancestor, but a relative. Um, he was the man who guided Henry VIII in, the, in, in his desire. Henry VIII was just a profligate f jerk, you know. Uh, he was led by not his brain, but other parts of his body. And he, that man cared only for, you know, his own reign, his own lusts, these kinds of things. Thomas Cromwell, his advisor, saw that Henry was being stymied in his desire to remarry and to do a number of things by the Roman Catholic Church. Thomas was a predecessor to the Puritans. He was, a, he was reformed. He was convinced of the Reformation, and this is in the time of the Reformation. And so he guided Henry, who really didn't want to leave Roman Catholicism, he just wanted the money that Rome was getting from the country, and he wanted the power to do what he wanted. He wanted to be, he didn't want the Pope over him. He didn't want the Holy Roman Empire, which was allied with the Pope, over him, which was at that time led out of Spain, although it was the, the, the Habsburg Empire. And we tend to associate that generally today with Austria, but really, it was for many years, it was led out of Spain. The, the head of the, the Holy Roman Empire was Spanish, was, was not Spanish, but led from Spain. Monarchy was centered there. So Thomas convinced Henry VIII that what he needed to do was to start a church of his own. 
And Thomas made sure that church was reformed. And Henry VIII finally killed Thomas as he did to everyone. You know, if you helped him, you were going to die. And Thomas Cromwell was executed for his aid to Henry VIII. But the, the reforms that he enacted took life and the Church of England began, which was separate from the Roman Catholic Church. But Henry VIII remained basically Catholic. He never in, really endorsed Reformed theology. And so this influence over the Church of England sort of was a mediating influence so that the Church of England was a, was a middle-of-the-road church between the Reformation and the Roman Catholic Church. It was high church, vestments, all this crud, written prayers, all this stuff, but it had also some of the features of the Reformation. It didn't have all the sacraments. It didn't have the Pope, most importantly. And so as time went on, the Church of England gained in power under Elizabeth, who, who was the queen during much of that era that Jordan was talking about last week. The Church of England grew in power. And by the late 1500s, the Church of England was, um, was well established in England. To the north, in Scotland, which was at the time a separate kingdom, although in some ways allied. Um, the Presbyterians, because of John Knox, have taken power. And it is the, the state church in Scotland is the Presbyterian, the Covenanters in Scotland. In England, it's the Church of England. In Ireland, it's largely Roman Catholic. But during these centuries, English people are moving to Ireland. And so there comes to be a wealthy group in, in Ireland that is that is Protestant, and they're English, they're not the Gaelic speakers of the Ireland, of Ireland, they are, and they're sort of resented, and they are the lords of Ireland, largely. In 1599, a man is born, a relative, maybe an ancestor, I can't remember, of, of Thomas Cromwell, named Oliver Cromwell. He's born to a family that is a, a family of of the gentility, which means they had property and standing in a community. They were the kind of people who would have family members in parliament. I think Oliver Cromwell had like six or eight cousins in parliament at some point during his life. You know, it was, it was not high level. It was very mid-level in terms of its wealth, in terms of its standing, but it was a significant family. It was significant in its... Um, not in its property holdings. When, when Cromwell grew up and, and got married, and he had about three or 400 pounds a year in income. Later, he had a major inheritance when he moved to Huntingdon, and that gave him much more money. He became a very wealthy landowner. But in the beginning, he wasn't a wealthy guy. He grew up, his, his parents sent him to school. He went to a school that was led by a pastor. The pastor was strict. And uh, he grew up being taught by Puritans. He then went to Cambridge University where he studied. He loved history of the world. He recommended that his son Richard study the books Raleigh's History of the World. He said, you should read this book. But <coughs> he had to leave Cambridge <coughs> at some point to go back home because of the death of his father. His mother was a real woman of God. And she lived to be 89. So she lived well through his life. Um, she was a, a strong woman of God 
and, and he moves back. He gets married in his 20s. He moves back. He, he becomes involved, embroiled somewhat in local politics. There's a dispute in the town that he's in about, between the, the wealthy people who run the place, the lords, and the common people over the commons, the fens. Um, and, and Cromwell, and, and what the lords are trying to do is, there, there's a drainage issue, but what they're trying to do eventually is to, to diminish the commons, the land that's held in common by the community that everyone can use, and attach more of the land to their own holdings so that the, they become wealthier, but it will impoverish and make life much harder for the peasants, the, the people who don't have property. Cromwell takes the sides of the peasants and says they're right. He, he, he gets in trouble. He has some issues. He's, I think he's sued, and, uh, and he goes to, it goes to a higher level, some, some bigwig. I, I can't remember who it was, but he goes to that higher level, the, the, the court, and the guy says, well, eventually he refuses to make a, a, a negative judgment, but he says the land stays as it is. The peasants get to use it. Cromwell leaves that area because he's, he's sort of become a persona non grata among the, the, the wealthier people in that area. He receives an inheritance. He moves away. And during that era... Uh, he becomes a member of parliament. 1628, he's 28 years old, he becomes a member of parliament. Now, parliament is a body, a legislative body that can be called by the king. It's supposed to advise him. It's established by what document in English history? A, a formational document. Yeah, it's established by... So it's, it's, the, it's a great innovation, a, a, an English innovation, and... And it really is the father document to our own constitution. You get that, Greg? Yeah, okay. Greg reads the Bible to his family every, every morning at breakfast. And then after breakfast, he reads the constitution to his family. Am I right? Close, okay. <laughs> so the Magna Carta establishes a parliament, but the king has to call a parliament for it to come into being. And the king can do it when he wants. Well... When the parliament is called in 1628 and 1629, Charles is a part of it for Huntington. Huntingdon. He serves in the parliament. He's a minor member. He's a backbencher. He's not important. He only, there's only one speech that, it, that it's recalled that he gave, and this one is against the Arminian bishop, Richard Neal. Now, Church of England... I said, is some semi-reformed. It's Arminian. The leadership is Arminian. They are not convinced of, of God calling people. They are Arminian. They believe that we choose God and that God is... It's, it's, it's Roman Catholic in its theology. You know, it's, it's, it's fundamental theology is Arminian. During this time that, that Cromwell is rising to very minor degree of prominence, there's bigger affairs going on in, in the nation and the world. Elizabeth, who had been the great queen of England, Elizabeth dies without an heir. She leaves no heir. Therefore, Mary, queen of Scots, who has a son named James, James is the king in 
in Scotland, Mary Queen Scots is dead at this time. James is king in Scotland. He's been king in Scotland for decades. Elizabeth dies in the southern kingdom of England. And England says, we have no heir. Well, Mary, Queen of Scots, had ties back into the Stuart monarchy. And James actually did have somewhat of a claim to the throne. He was the king to the north. The English decide we're going to call James to be our king. He comes down, I think at this point, he's, you know, he's been... He was 58 years, I think, king of Scotland. He began like when he was eight. So um, he's in his 40s or 50s, something like that. He's been king in Scotland for a couple decades at this point. He comes down. He is happy to be the king of England. He returns once in the rest of his life to Scotland, only once. And for the rest of his life, he is the king of England and Scotland together. James comes down and... And as he comes down, Puritans in England meet with him and they ask him as he comes to assume the throne to have a meeting with them where they can present to him reforms that they hope he will make in the nation as he assumes its throne, looking on him as a Scottish king and a, therefore a Presbyterian as a friend. They think, wow, a new day is dawning. The persecutions that have gone on are going to calm down. We're going to have a friend on the throne. It is said that, King, <laughs> that there was a saying that Elizabeth died and England lost a king. James assumed the throne and England gained a queen. That was the saying, all right? There was speculation, but he produced many children. It seems to be unfair. Speculation about sexuality, but it was clear that he was a guy who did not like war, did not like, he was not a, he was not a guy who was a strong leader. He meets eventually with the, with the Puritans at a, a conference they present their request to him. He says, no, 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 no. The only one he grants is that they want a new translation of the Bible. And he grants that because he doesn't like the Geneva Bible. And the Geneva Bible questions the divine right of kings. It says that an immoral king is not, it's a Puritan Bible. It says an immoral king is not truly a legitimate leader. And, or, a, you know, an ungodly king. Not just immoral. And so if we're talking about morality is sexuality, you know, uh, a king who doesn't follow the Lord is not fit to be king. And so he doesn't like the Geneva Bible at all, which is the common translation, so he sets up the King James Version. But he also installs as the Archbishop of Canterbury a man named William Laud. And Laud, L-A-U-D, is an absolutely evil, tyrannical man. And Laud is a confirmed anti-Puritan, he, um, he strengthens the laws against Puritans preaching and publishing. He puts pastors to death for preaching. There is a, I'm told, a great movie that was done on the life of 
of Cromwell in 1970, and it begins by showing the things that were going on while he was growing up and coming to power. And remember, his mother was probably Puritan. He had been taught by Puritans. But during that period, you know, there was famous cases where a guy published a Puritan book, a pastor. Um, Laud had his ears cut off, his nose sliced open to the top. He was branded on the head. He was put in the stocks and then, and pray, and so that people could throw things at him, and then he was burned to death. Now, this is the kind of guy that was running the Church of England. It said that he took a list of all the clergy in England. He had a list compiled, and he had, by everyone's name with his own pen, a listing, a, a letter. Either they were Puritan or, or Orthodox, P-R-O. You know, and he went to kill, to wipe out, to get out of the ministry he, all the Puritans. He hated them. As did... King James had absolutely no desire to help the Puritans. James died, and his son, Charles I, assumed the throne. Charles I was a, was a man who lived as a sniveling coward for most of his life and then died like a man. Um, put to death by the Puritans, put to death by the Parliament led by Cromwell. Um, James or Charles was a sneak. He was a thief. He imprisoned nobility without parliamentary approval. Parliament had to approve taxation, and so he had to call parliaments for money. And that's what would usually cause a king to call a parliament because they couldn't tax without a parliamentary act. And so. He would imprison nobility. He had a, a whole system worked out where he'd throw them in prison until they gave him money, theoretically alone. But um, so Charles grew to be somewhat despised. Charles had a sort of romantic view of himself, and uh, he, he, he had in his mind an idea that he was going to, he thought it would be a great shoring up of the kingdom. He was going to marry the Infanta, Maria Anna, Maria Anna of Spain, which was the, the, the daughter of the Holy Roman Emperor. He thought, I'm going to marry this girl. We'll unite the Holy Roman Empire with us. We will, you know, we'll no longer have these issues. Um, and it was thought by many that Charles really wanted to turn England back to the Roman Catholicism of his, his ancestors. That visit, he, he at 22, I think he was 22, went for an eight-month... Oh, here's an interesting fact. Not fact, but a story which seems to be true. When uh, Charles's father was coming down from Scotland to assume the throne of England, called down to become the king, as he made his way south, he stayed along the way with... with nobility, people who had castles and places. And on the way south, James stopped at Cromwell's father's place. And it's thought that it's likely, or, or at least possible, that, that Charles, who was a child at that time, and Cromwell, Oliver Cromwell, who was also a child, played together. They end up being arch foes, and Charles is put to death by Cromwell. 
Cromwell, Charles is uh, one. He is he, he goes to Spain to try and get the Infanta, Maria Anna, the baby, the 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 lovely daughter of the empire. He, he goes to Spain to try and win her hand in 1623 and fails. She spurns him. She, she is filled with contempt for the guy. So he goes home disappointed. Uh, two years later, shortly after coming to the throne, he marries by proxy. They're not together, but he marries by proxy Henrietta Maria of France. And um, they can't come together because of the seas or whatever, but they're, they're married. And then, so she goes, sets sail north, and, uh, and there's a storm, and they have to put in, I think it's in Norway. And... and there's not the ships and things to, to get across to England. Charles, they say, and the only romantic thing he did in his life, the only brave and romantic thing, he got, he got I think, 200 ships, went across and got her and brought her back. But he is this ignoble man who is sitting on the throne. He has the Archbishop Laud who's killing people. He mistreats the, the nobility. He has a fondness for Roman Catholicism that concerns all of England because no one wants to go back under the Pope. Not even the, the, the Church of England people want that. Cromwell, meanwhile, is going through in this same period, he's going through a crisis in his life. In the, about the age of 20, 30 to 38, at some, we're not exactly sure, he seems to have come down with clinical depression. And he is, it, they call it melancholia. He is melancholy, he is, he's depressed. He only comes out of that finally in about 1638 when he becomes absolutely convinced that he's a child of God. He comes to assurance of salvation at 1638. All this time, he's sort of a local gentry. He, uh, he's risen because he's in Huntington rather than this place where he began. He has a, a much bigger estate, but... Nevertheless, he's not. Now, at this time in England, there were various armies, not like we know today. And this is one of the, the great legacies. I mean, there are legacies of Cromwell everywhere. Everywhere. Two houses of government. Cromwell. I mean, there had been a house of lords, but Cromwell really put it back in, it was called his other house, and made it something that was a staple, something that was never going to leave. And thus we have the Senate as well as the House. Um, the army. The armies of the day were local gentlemen who raised soldiers to help them. Those soldiers could be called on by the king, but they were from regions, they were not national. They were Lord so-and-so's militia, so-and-so's militia, they were not a national group at all. So Cromwell had perhaps had a little bit of training because the arts of war, riding a horse, learning to fight with a sword were taught to gentlemen and weren't taught to the average citizen. Cromwell probably had some of that training as a gentleman, but he had no, no background in war. Well, what happens is that 
By the time of the late 19, or 1630s and early 1640s, Charles has said, I'm done with Parliament, and for 11 years, he, he has dissolved Parliament, he doesn't call it. 11 years, he goes, and he doesn't call a Parliament. He's, he's extorting money during that period, he's doing things, he's... Uh, and finally, he's forced to call a parliament again in 1640. Cromwell comes back. It's been 12 years since he first entered. He comes back in 1640. He's part of this parliament, but it's a very short parliament because the, the king says it's over. He's unhappy with it. It lasts only three weeks, and it's known as the short parliament. But during that period, he moves from Ely to London. A second parliament is called. He still needs money. He still has to get it. This is something he can't overcome. He, he has to call parliament to get taxation. And it becomes known as the long parliament. The same year, 1640, there's this three-week parliament. King calls it again later in the year. becomes known as the long parliament. There is, a, as I'm recalling, because I couldn't get my books that I have on Cromwell, uh, there's a, a, some kind of a an ability, as long as it's meeting, you can't cancel it. But if they go home, you can cancel it. And so the long parliament, as I recall, is because I may have this wrong. Does anyone know? It's a long parliament because they keep sitting. They don't go home. There's always someone occupying the chair doing the work of the parliament, theoretically. So they're kind of depriving the king of his ability to get rid of the parliament. They don't stop. They don't leave session. They're still seated, even if many have gone home. And that becomes the long parliament. Um, he is uh, a member of that. And during this period, the, there becomes more and more of a, of a division between the parliament, which was supported by, it's interesting, parliament, there's a division between the parliament and the king, obviously. But it becomes more and more central and focused during this period. And parliament is supported by the, the, the common people in places like London, okay? So London and is a hotbed of parliamentary support. You know, the cities are for the parliament, not the king. The nobility are generally for the king. And so you get out into the countryside and the king is supported. In the city, parliament is supported and it becomes more and more of a problem. The king is trying to go against uh, uh, the parliament. Parliament is not granting his wishes and it leads to an armed conflict in late 1642. That parliament sits until 1642. It sits beyond that. And the, the English Civil War begins. And then this is the point where Cromwell becomes the guy. He's not a famous guy. He's just a le local leader. In the first battle, Charles uses Rupert, uh, Lord or Count Rupert, uh, who had fought in the Thirty Years' War, who knew battle inside out. He goes out against the, the Puritans and the parliamentarians. And the Puritans, of course, are on the side of the parliament because the, Charles has been totally against them. And so all the Puritans are on the side of parliament. Char at the first battle, they're, they're almost wiped out. But 
he doesn't, they, he, the, the, Rupert allows the soldiers to, to loot the baggage train, which gives time for the English to come back and it becomes sort of a, a mixed thing. It's not a, the total win it was going to be. During this period, Cromwell raises a cavalry force. They realize they can't fight against the cavalry. Cromwell raises a cavalry force, okay? And he goes into the next battle and he fights like a man who's fought his whole life. And it said that Cromwell from that point never lost a battle. The only English general never to lose a battle was Cromwell. He never lost. He won every battle he fought from then on, and he fought battle after battle. And so as the war continues, Cromwell rises and rises until the point where the, there is one, one duke or lord over him, and I, I forget the guy's name, um, but Cromwell is second in command of parliamentary army. And he wins, and he wins, and he wins. In July of 1844, the Battle of Marston Moor, M-A-R-S-T-O-N, Cromwell is now a lieutenant general, and there is a major parliamentary victory. Marston Moor secures the north of England for the parliamentarians. The royalist resistance didn't end but it is becoming clear that the parliament under the parliamentary army under the leadership of Cromwell is almost invincible. And so at this point, what happens is that the Scottish who are Presbyterians become incensed that their Scottish king, who had only returned once in his whole life since he went down to London, that the Scottish king is being fought against. And it's said that also, there's a, a funny story, a cute little story, is that when Cromwell was a child, he had almost drowned and the local pastor had saved him. Some years later during these wars, when he's at the head of his army, he's marching through a town, he sees the pastor who saved him. He stops, gets down, starts talking to the pastor and says, you remember when you, when you saved my life? The pastor turns to him and says, yeah, I would have thrown you in if I'd known you'd be fighting, leading the army to fight against your king. All right. But this was Cromwell. Cromwell never got angry. He had a bigness and graciousness in his life that was immense. Later on, when people, when he would go around England when he was the Lord Protector, and he'd go, people would preach against him. He'd be sitting in Ireland in a church and they'd be preaching against him and they, because they were Church of England people. And he would sit there. He never once, never once sought to have anyone put to death. Never once. He never got angry, never responded to attacks on himself. Rutherford of Scottish Presbyterian firm fame wrote a letter attacking him, a personal letter, but, but Cromwell was gracious. What happens is that, it, and this is a, a, a very important change, Cromwell says, you know what, this army, all these little groups from all over coming in and trying to work together is no good. 
It just doesn't work. We're going to have a new model army. How many of you have heard of the new model army? It's on a new model. And what he said is we're going to have a pan, a pan Great Britain army. It's going to be from everywhere. It's going to be men who, who can be relied upon. It's going to be men who don't have a loyalty to this baron or that count, but who will all be united. And he raised an army of, grew from a couple thousand to about 20,000 people that was invincible. It was, and it was filled, and it was filled with Puritans. John Bunyan was a member of that army. Richard Baxter, I'm, I'm trying to remember the names. Richard Baxter was, was a chaplain in that army. I think Owen was too. Maybe not Owen, but he was a friend to it. John Milton of Paradise Lost and Paradise Regained was Cromwell's secretary in that army. It was filled with Christians. They fought and they did not kill. They did not rape. They did not loot. They obeyed. When Cromwell took his troops into Ireland, because Ireland rebels later on, uh, before he becomes Lord Protector. He's leading with his army. Two of the, as they get into their first battles, two men are hanged from his army because they looted. Now, people remember Cromwell for two massacres that occurred during his fighting in Ireland. First was in Dragada, um, a city that they besieged and that refused to surrender. The law of warfare at the time was that if the city doesn't surrender and you take it, you kill everything. And Cromwell did that. And he wrote back and he said, I did this because it will cause less bloodshed later. The next city did the same thing. He, he had everyone in that city put to death. From then on, every city surrendered. And every single one of those cities that he fought from then on that he besieged was allowed not a person was killed if they agreed to surrender he was a man of his word this guy he was brave he was grand he was in foreign affairs he had in his 20s, he had sought permission from the king to go to Connecticut to be a settler in the New World. They denied it, so he stayed in England and changed the course of England. But he was, it was during James and Charles and Cromwell that so many English settlers, Puritans, came over. He, um, he's famous for having, having supported Christians wherever they were persecuted. So the Barbary Pirates, how many of you have heard of the Barbary Pirates? At this point in time, I think the figure was a million. It may have been two or three million. Had over the past decades and century, had taken at least a million Europeans into slavery and sold them. They would make raids on the coast. Even today, they, you can find on the coast of England watchtowers. And those watchtowers stem from that period. They were established to show that the pirates were on, the, on their way and the people would run to the inland. They took people from England they took, and they sold them and sold them and sold them. Cromwell said we need a navy. The beginning of the great British navy that even today is sort of a legend was Cromwell. 
He, he raised a navy. He sent them south. And he said, you defeat the Barbary pirates so that this enslavement of Christians cannot go on any longer. In France during this period, the, the persecution of the Huguenots was intense. And there was a... Um, I've gotten ahead of myself. Eventually, Cromwell and the parliamentarians, they keep trying to deal with the king. The king is losing. He's captured by them. They keep trying to maintain him as king and say, agree with us, agree with us. He won't. He's constantly scheming, conniving, trying to make deals with the Catholics, trying to do this. They finally... They put him on trial, they charge him with treason, and they put him to death. And, uh, and for that act, he is reviled today, and for his Christianity. He becomes Lord Protector some years after that. He's asked to become the king by the parliament, he refuses. He seeks to protect the Christians. He wrote to the Count of Savoy, the Duke of Savoy, word came to England of the massacre of Waldensians, which were early reformed people. They well preceded the Reformation. They were people who lived in poverty and for God. The, you know, like the Reformation before the Reformation, way before, centuries before the Waldensians had been around. News came to England of the massacre. The Count, uh, the Duke of Savoy, said to people, you either convert or you, you must leave your homes and your things and you must go up to it from your valleys into the mountaintops and live in the mountaintops. So all of the Waldensians went to the mountaintops where there were poor Waldensians who lived. Then the Duke said, now, now that you're up there, I'm going to, I'm, I'm going to uh, station troops in your homes. And the troops were stationed in the mountaintops with them. And then they arranged a general massacre. 4 a.m. one morning, all the troops killed all the Waldensians. Um, he called for various European leaders to help. He sent 2,000 pounds of his own money. I mean, that's millions today, to help the Waldensians. He sent a letter to the, the Duke saying, Most Serene Prince, we are informed by letters received from several places in the vicinity. Thought that Milton helped him write this. In your dominions, the subjects of your royal highness professing the reformed religion have been commanded by an edict published by your authority to quit their habitations and lands within three days after the promulgation of the said edict under pain of death and the confiscation of their property unless they shall enter into an engagement to abjure their own and to embrace the Roman Catholic faith before the end of 20 days. We have learned also that regardless of their humble petitions to your highness, praying that you would be pleased to revoke the said edict and to grant the same privileges which were anciently conceded by your serene ancestors, your army fell upon them cruelly, slaughtered great numbers, imprisoned others, and drove the rest to fly for refuge to desolate places, to mountains covered with snow where hundreds of families are reduced to such extremity that it is to be feared they will all shortly perish with cold and hunger. Upon receiving intelligence of the melancholic condition of this most oppressed people, it was impossible not to feel the greatest commiseration and grief, for we not only consider ourselves united to them by common ties of humanity, but by those of the same religion. He, he, he was a great, great, great man. He always had a, a challenge 
knowing whether he was leading England or leading the church. And I want to end with this. His new model army did not allow people to be dukes and nobility and part of it. He basically instituted the separation of the executive and legislative branch from the army. The army served and it did not lead. But the army was made up of Baptists and independents and, and the parliament that was the, the rebellious body that had put King Charles to death was largely Presbyterian at this point. The Presbyterians were as willing to kill Baptists as the, the Church of England and Archbishop Laud had been willing to kill Presbyterians. They, they, were, they were as, and Cromwell said, you can't do this. These men have, they love Jesus, they believe the same truths, they may differ in certain areas, but you can't do this. You can't do this. He, he, and he kind of prevailed, didn't really. It led to many of the separatists coming to America during this period, Baptists coming to America. But the problem he had is that he both wanted to be king and leader for God of England and of the Christians, of the faithful, of the nation and of the faithful. And in the end, when he left his position, the parliament that had, had fought the wars, that had supported the rebellion, the parliament that won the Civil War, and it's now comprised mainly of Presbyterians, goes back and brings back the son of Charles I and goes right back to Church of England. And much of the progress that Cromwell had made was lost. And, and the point that I think we need to... to re- to recognize, and I want to end with from Cromwell, is that we're living in a time when, when guys are saying, let's take our nation for God. But the problem has always been, as in the time of Cromwell, that the Pope in our own hearts, the sin in our own hearts, is as much a problem as the sin in Washington. There was never a nation that was more of a godly kingdom. And in fact, there were some people there called fifth monarchists who thought the kingdom of heaven was to come on earth because of what was happening during those days with the Puritans and the the Baptists winning and the Presbyterians winning. They thought this is the kingdom of heaven on earth. And they, once they gained power, were almost immediately just like the people before them. Do you understand? Cromwell was an anomaly. But they immediately turned to be, if Moscow, Idaho takes over the United States, Moscow, Idaho will be just like Washington, D.C. Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world, and this has bearing today. So for all those who think Christian nationalism is the solution to our nation's problems, Cromwell will tell you, no, it didn't solve it. And it's not going to solve anything. What will solve it is the change of our hearts and our being repentant Christians who follow God. All right? So I want to close with that. AJ, would you lead us in prayer?